Hello everyone, welcome back to Geekery in General. I am Al, and joining me today, a friend of mine who I actually have not had on the podcast in quite a while, Casey. How are you doing today? Doing fine, Al. Thanks for having me on. So, last time we had an interview with uh, my friend Tom, who was uh, did some artwork for me for Strange Things Afoot, and uh, now we have the second artist interview with uh, Casey, who did the cover and some of the interior art. So, now, uh, as I mentioned before, Casey has been on the podcast before. I think the first episode we did was actually one about the creepypastas and urban legends. Entirely possible. It I was back was... there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, back when we did that episode, did you ever think that someday you'd be doing a cover for an RPG inspired by those topics? I mean, I hoped I'd be doing covers for any number of topics. I'm glad I got to do this one. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's okay if you didn't think so, because I never actually thought I would write an RPG based on uh, creepypastas and urban legends, and actually, I think you were one of the people that got me interested in them, uh, at least in the creepypastas. I've always been interested in urban legends. Um, again, I've always just found them really fascinating, yeah. especially, especially ones that, like, uh, have a mixture of truth and fiction to them. So what would you say is probably your favorite urban legend? That's a great question. Um, I am hugely interested in this stuff, as you know, because we had some conversations about them in the past. Um, I love the way that they develop and grow over time. I'm very proud of the fact, and it's probably not something I should actually be proud of, that I was on the Something Awful forums when Slenderman was first being created. <laughs> I remember the thread. You know, I feel ancient now but um <laughs> i would say i would say my favorite urban legends change over time because the fears that urban legends address change as you mature right when i was a kid the things that scared me were things like intruders in the house and then as i got older it was things that messed with the idea of your body like the idea of a pimple that was actually uh, a whole bunch of baby spiders and then as I got older and developed a family, the idea of a babysitter that microwaved the baby was absolutely horrifying. And now, I mean, 2020, who knows what could happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say on Facebook, uh, there have been a lot of good memes about 2020. I think mm -hmm. one of my favorites, have you ever seen Cabin in the Woods? Yes. Fantastic movie. Uh, you know, there's that one scene where that guy's in that, like, command center is taking the odds, and behind him there's yeah. a white bear that has all the stuff. Like, someone put, like, you know, murder, who had murder hornets in, uh, you know, for July, and uh, another one. I who... think I shared one, because there's two full moons in October, and I shared one that was, who had double werewolves for October. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I like how people have ran with that one. So, I mean, I'd have to say for me, uh, urban legends probably one of my favorite ones is the urban legend about how van halen uh, caused thousands and thousands of dollars of damage to a locker room because of a bowl of m&ms that didn't have the brown ones picked out and one of the things i've always liked about that one is as i said it's actually a mix of fact and fiction yes so and now we also as i said before you also actually started getting me interested in creepypastas because way back when, oh geez, how many years ago would it have been? We were doing that Marvel Superheroes campaign at our local game store. Yes. And I remember you and uh, a young woman that we were that we had gamed with 
I think they had mentioned Slender Man, and then it's like, so you you were talking a little bit about it, and then of course I went and uh, started looking up images of Slender Man. You know, when I got home that evening, and mm-hmm. I have, I've ended up downloading a copy of uh, Slender: The Eight Pages. I'm yep. not sure if that's still available or not because I know they made Probably. an extended version of it, but. I'm sure it's out there on Steam. I'm sure some. I'm sure it's available somewhere. Yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed that. I the way I see it, urban legends used to spread by word of mouth, and now the internet is our word of mouth. And so it's the discussion forums and the back and forths that create urban legends, just like conversations and hallways used to create urban legends of the past. So. I think creepypasta are valid and interesting, and I'm thrilled that you explored them in this game. And do you have a favorite creepypasta? Ooh. I don't know if they count as creepypasta, but I absolutely love the SCP Foundation. Um, If anybody is listening to this podcast that is interested in looking into them, you can Google it. It's basically a crowdsourced series of stories about a uh, secret government agency, secure, contain, protect, that maintains all kinds of information and creatures beyond our mortal ken. And it's ridiculous and sometimes moving and sometimes insanely creepy. And uh, it's incredibly open and alive. And also, by the way, it's under attack by a Russian uh, copyright troll. So... You know, it's something that we have the opportunity to protect together right now. SP, I know SP, SCP Foundation is one of those things that's interesting because while some people do consider it creepypasta, others wouldn't really put it in that because it's kind of evolved into its own thing with its own universe. I would say that it contains creepypasta, but it is not itself creepypasta. Yeah, and SCP Foundation's fun. Um, One channel on YouTube I recommend actually a couple if you like scp foundation uh the exploring series i know they've done yep. yeah they've done several videos on different um different scps also another one i watched tats top videos they've done a few uh top lists of you know the scariest scps they did one not too too long ago about just aquatic scps so again if you're interested those are a lot of fun I'd have to say one of my favorite creepypastas that I uh, read a while ago It's called The No End House. Yeah. Oh, that one's so creepy. Oh, I hate ones where you can't control what happens on the other side of a door. Even in movies, it drives me nuts. There's a movie you can find, I, I think it's still on Netflix, called Grave Encounters. And it's a relatively straightforward story about a um, group of paranormal investigators that gets trapped in a hospital, but it's got one of my personal deepest, darkest fears, which is that doors won't work properly. The doors won't have what you expect to have on the other side of them. I hate that. I absolutely hate it. Well, and yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. And no end, no end house does the same thing. So fantastic, fantastic reference. I recommend that also. Yeah. And one of the things I like about it is, one, another one of my favorite urban legends is the story about how, you know, somewhere around Halloween, a group puts on a, ha- a haunted house exhibit that's so scary, no one's ever gotten through it. Yeah. And 
the original version of the legend I heard, which was back in the early 90s, the story, I, for, as I first heard it, it costs like 50 bucks to get in. And mm-hmm. some variations say that you get $5 back or $10 back for each floor. Some versions say that you only get money back if you make it all the way to the end. So uh, that's one of the reasons I like the no-end houses because it reminds me a lot of that particular urban legend. And when you consider that $50 in 1990 is about 99 bucks today, like $100 to go in, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and again, it's this is another one of those things I love about urban legends is how they change and how they're they're told different ways in different regions. Like mm-hmm. there's some um places for like the haunted house where they say the reason you can't get to the end is because the final doorway you have to like cross a rickety board over a 50 foot drop that has sharks and cobras and spikes mm-hmm. and broken glass at the bottom. And then there's others that say like the workers will push you down a slide. Um, though, have you ever heard of McKinley Manor? No, I haven't. It is probably the closest real life version you'll get to that. Basically, in order to go to go through this, it's not really a haunted house exhibit. It's more of an ordeal. If you complete it, you get $20,000. All you have to do is donate a bag of dog food. However, before you do it, there's like this huge waiver you have to sign. You have to go sure. through a psychological evaluation. And yeah, it's, I know there's a show, I think Dark Tourist on Netflix had something about it. So yeah. And if you don't like... If you've creeped out by doors not working how they uh, how they should, then there's a, a demo adventure I wrote for Strange Things Afoot called The Yellow Maze. You probably mm. don't want to play that adventure then. There's um there's other times that it's been done. I remember in the in the before times, pre COVID, my husband and I went to <laughs> a um went to a haunted house and in a warehouse portion of the building they had built a small house. What we didn't know at the time was that the walls were modular, and as the group was funneled through the house, people outside it were changing the walls. And so this little space that looked completely ordinary became this endless maze, and it absolutely killed me. It was fantastic. Um, I feel like our fears are something that we should confront. I feel like our fears are something that teach us about ourselves, and I feel that they can show us what we value. So I don't mind uh, that I was scared in that way. And I I think that if I ever reach the point when it stops scaring me, I'll have learned something important. Cool. So let's get on to uh, the other topic we're going to talk about, and that is some of the art that you've done for Strange Things Afoot. But before mm-hmm. we discuss that, let's go back. How did you become interested in art? So... What made you decide to, I mean, do you have a formal art background? Are you mostly self-taught? What are some of the things that inspired you to study art? That's a really interesting question because I think all of us have passions, especially when you're young. And I don't think there's any child alive that doesn't like drawing. I think that I loved it when I was young. And the difference, the reason that I stuck with it is because it became one of the things that I enjoyed failing at. I could like doing it even when I felt that I was doing it badly. And the fact that I could perceive that I was doing it badly is what allowed me to improve. 
So that combination of being able to see that it's not good enough and like it anyway, that's what pushed me forward. That's interesting. And I, you, you make a good point about it. And I, I think it definitely is uh, holds true for art where it is one of those things where it, it's fun and it can be relaxing to do even if you're not you know, a very good artist. It's There's still something very soothing about drawing or painting a picture. Mm -hmm. it's it's one of our it's one of our drives as a human i think i mean the fact that there are carvings and sculptures and paintings going back to prehistoric times tells me that this is one of the fundamental ways of being a human oh yeah i mean the the simple act of recording something that can be passed on to other generations i think is a uh, very powerful if you think about it mm -hmm. so when you start, after you started uh, getting interested in art, now, did you take any art classes in college or uh, did you? I did. Just... For a little while, I toyed with the idea of going full on capital F, capital A, fine art. <laughs> um, and I, I, what I found most repugnant about it was the necessity of holding a pose to become marketable as a fine artist. You had to market yourself as opposed to coming up with the perfect image. And I think that's what drove me back towards illustration was that with illustration, it's about communicating the moment as opposed to being part of a conversation that's outside of your control in terms of judgment. Okay. Who would you say are some of your artistic influences? I would say there's a lot of influences because uh, even going from – Subject to subject, you're influenced by anything you participate with. Uh, you're influenced by anything that you bring into your purview. Now, in terms of art, I would say a lot of things that I took with me into uh, this project were uh, early comics, like EC Comics for especially, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, Haunt of Fear, all of those wonderful, uh, you know, splashy uh, you know, intense moments of ink. Uh, the On the cover, the skeleton's hands, well, not, I don't know if it's a skeleton exactly, but the creature's hands, I specifically tried to go for that goopy sensation of ink that was both uh, just something that's visibly a drawing, but the goopiness of it made it feel real. Um, I wanted to create the same effect that those comics had had on me when I read them. Okay, yeah, because I remember seeing some of those old uh, Tales from the Crypt comics, and yeah, they were they were creepy. Mm -hmm. They were they were pushing what the limits of what you could do to evoke an emotion, and not just to grab attention like advertising, but to make you feel something shocking. And I admire that. I admire anybody who pushes the envelope one way or the other, and I try to look for art that pushes the envelope in a variety of ways, whether it's in technique or whether it's in subject or whether it's in uh, trying to change how we perceive what we're looking at. One of my favorite things right now is uh, comic book art to which fine art techniques and understandings are applied so that you have what some would consider very low-end subjects seen through a very, very high-end filter. I know one of that that kind of reminded me one of my art uh, professors back in college uh he he was a photography professor and mm -hmm. for the classes I took with him 
he handed out, there was a handout he gave out and he said that he did it every year for his classes and, you know, he would add something to it. Basically, it was just called Food for Thought where uh, it was supposed to inspire us if we were ever running short on ideas. And there were some interesting things there like, you know, one and one of the things that you said that got me, that reminded me of that list was try to photograph something mundane but try to picture it in and, you know, make it seem more important than it really is. Well, that's actually something that's worth discussing because it leads into the, the cover idea that I had. Because one of the things I always try to do with my own still images, uh, not looking at comic pages, but a single moment. Um, one of the best compliments I ever got was that, in an image I make, it looks like the most important moment of that person's day, right? And any mundane thing can be important or critical or meaningful. Um, the object matters because of the context. The moment matters because of what it means. And so anything can be exciting. It's all about trying to find that perfect moment, that perfect ma- angle to make it immediate to make the meaning present. Cool. Yeah, and um, so let's actually move on to the cover for Strange Things Afoot. Uh, so good transition there, because <laughs> when I first asked you about doing the cover, mm-hmm. I didn't really have any specific ideas for what I wanted the cover to look like. And the so the idea you came up with, and so if you look at the finished product, it mm-hmm. is a picture of a young woman on her cell phone, and she's standing in front of a car, and it looks like there's a, a prosthetic limb, like an artificial hand hanging from it, and there's this ghoulish like thing in the back. Um, now, of course, I know the story behind this, but uh, why don't you tell the listeners what inspired you to create that cover for the the book? Okay. Well, as you know, we went through a number of different ideas and sketches and discussions. We talked about different creepypasta images that might be included or not included. And after some time, we determined that it was probably best not to include anything too recognizable or possibly trademarked. (laughs) Yeah. That's one thing I know you got to be careful with uh, the creepypastas nowadays. Some of it, like, um, they, like Jeff the Killer, I know, is under copyright. Slender Man's under copyright. And... I'm sure there's some others. I think even Smile Dog. There's a lot of images that have gotten snapped up. It's sort of like uh, when when the J-horror craze hit uh, around uh, the time of The Ring and uh, Dark Water and uh, The Grudge. People were just buying up properties left and right in the hopes that they would hit on the next big thing. And similarly, there was a rush to buy uh, intellectual property for Creepypasta. Which is difficult because they're crowdsourced, basically. These are things that happened as a conversation. Yeah, and you got some of them like on uh, creepypasta.wikia.com that, you know, they're under Creative Commons. So it's considered polite to ask someone if you want to use it, but, you know, it's um, it's considered yeah. polite, but technically you don't have to. You have to at least attribute them. But, yeah, for stuff that didn't uh, originate or it's not posted on that, it's subject to those copyrights. Like, I don't know if you ever heard of Trevor Henderson. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm aware. 
so yeah, he's uh, for anyone who hasn't heard of him, he he does a lot of photoshopped monster images. Probably the most famous ones he has are Cartoon Cat, uh, Siren yeah. Head, and 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 Long Horse. I think that's what's called. My kids are completely and utterly fascinated with this guy. Um, What I think he's doing is actually very valuable because he's taking those conversations and illustrating them and making them more participatory. I think he's giving these concepts life beyond what they would have as only a conversation. Um, I don't know if what he does can exist outside of the context of that internet conversation but i respect what he's been able to accomplish there was i know there was someone that did make a, a siren head video game computer yeah, game that it's yeah. it's intended to be like a homage to the ps1 era where it's got kind of those early early 3d graphics yeah i know there's a few of those games um jacksepticeye played one there's a few let's plays out there um i like i like the wild west internet feeling that creepypastas give yeah so back to the cover so we you know so again you had this idea of um you know you wanted to try to you were you know maybe use someone like slender man or jeff the killer but unfortunately you know just couldn't do that because of copyright so then i thought Let's give a nod, an immediate visual nod, to one of the most well-known urban legends out there, which is uh, basically the – it's something that's so old and then so fresh that it's become a meme, you know, with the hook hand car. Uh, but the idea of the urban legend, the, the prosthetic hook that's been torn off on the car door, and then bring in the internet by having the girl with a cell phone – and give the immediate sensation of all of those creepypastas by having the central figure be someone who's vulnerable, who doesn't know what's about to happen, and then give something that's compelling and interesting and strange and dangerous right behind her. I felt that without being any given story, that really kind of encapsulated it. Here's someone who's vulnerable and interesting, threatened by something that's dangerous and interesting, and we've got the old urban legends and the new urban legends all tied in together. Yeah, and I thought that was brilliant the way you uh, you know explained it and how you executed it. Where yeah, the idea between the the new and the old. So, and actually, I did. What's that? I said thank you, Al. <laughs> You're welcome. And actually, I did think that figure that's on the cover that actually now that I look at it is not too different from a. Mo- I, I'm making a new book for Strange Things Afoot. Uh, that's going to be like the the monster manual. Uh, it's going to have some creatures you can use in the game. And I just thought of it. You know, that creature could actually be very similar to one that I actually have in the that I've designed so far. Well, I mean, Al, 2020 is kicking my butt, but reach back out to me if you want. Yep. <laughs> so the uh, next question I have is let's um, move to some of the inner artwork that you did. So yeah. with uh, Strange Things Afoot, you play the role of high school students. So very different from your normal uh, stuff in a lot of your fantasy games. You know, you're playing stuff like, Mm -hmm. you you know, you're playing fighters and wizards and thieves and stuff like that. So what, uh, let's, so in Strange Things Afoot, you're playing high school students. And instead of like a fighter, you might be playing a jock. Instead of a bard, you're playing an entertainer. Instead of playing right. a wizard, you might be playing a nerd. So right. let's go with the – let's take a look at some of the click pictures. So the first one, the entertainer. Um, mm-hmm. 
So what were some of your inspirations for that one? Well, for all of the click pictures, first of all, I really liked the idea of taking out the idea of a class as something you do and making the class as the sort of person you are. And um, I, I thought that was fantastic. But what I wanted to do is take it to a high school perspective and say, how does each of these kids see themselves? And an entertainer, the sort of kid, the theater kid doesn't see themselves necessarily as in the background. The theater kid sees themselves foreground, front and center. And so I gave that kid a guitar. I put them right at the edge of the stage. We are looking up at this kid as though we are, you know, a screaming fan. And I thought that was the sort of thing that would make somebody who identified with that sort of person want to play that character. Because the way I see it, every single one of those character classes has its good points, has a reason why you would really want to do that, why they would be your favorite uh, kind of character. And so I always wanted to say, okay, here's why you identify them. Here's why they're your favorite character. Okay. Yeah, and I actually just noticed that how the with the – is it low angle? Yeah, I think it's it's a low angle oh, yeah. or a high angle. It's – because I know it's it's used comes up in theater and cinema where uh, you're talking about high angle and low angle where if you look up at something it makes it seem more powerful uh, than and more exactly. important. But when you look down, but yeah, it's like kind of like he's up on a pedestal there. And if you'll notice, anybody that's not at a, a low angle there, if you're not looking up at them, you're always right at eye line with the person who's in the picture because the idea is either they're bigger than life or you're identifying with them immediately that was my perspective yeah and uh, i can certainly see what you mean about with like i mean you look at some rock stars and actors and actresses they almost do have these larger than life personas mm -hmm. so let's move to the next one the jock so what was your what were some of your thought processes when you were doing the jock character I suppose this is where it comes in the difference, the individual perspective of the artist, because in high school, the jocks I interacted with were not like the football team. The, the people I knew into sports were also girls and the most hardcore, completely 100% into it, sports people that I knew were the soccer girls. They would end your entire life. <laughs> They were, they were hardcore. And so when I think of a jock, I don't necessarily think, you know, of some meathead, but I think of someone who has become this laser-focused missile aimed specifically at a ball that's going to go straight for your head, you know? And I decided that I wanted to include that in part because since I liked your idea of the classes as types of people instead of the classes as roles. I didn't want you or your game to get stuck in stereotypes. Yeah. And I, I like how you use the soccer girl because again, a lot of times when we think of jocks, yeah, we are thinking of, you know, the captain of the football team or the, you know, the wrestler. So it was a nice touch using the, uh, so I like how you decided to go with the, the female soccer player. And I also thought the anime motion lines forcing your eye into the picture, I thought that was a good touch as well. Oh, yeah, because the moment of the kick, that's right before it goes straight for your forehead. 
And it's either you it's either you get in the way of the ball or she scores a goal. One or the other. No no in between. Yep. Get out of the way or you're gonna get steamrollered. Exactly. So moving on to the opposite of the nerd, or I'm sorry, opposite of the jock, we've got the nerd. So this one, um, it looks like she's wearing supposed to be wearing like a Starfleet type uniform. God help me, that's me. God what? help me. You are I a... was I was the world's biggest, most awkward, completely socially inept nerd. And when I think of nerd rage, I picture myself freaking out because uh, I did have that word spelled correctly. I can show you the dictionary. How dare you suggest that I was wrong? <laughs> and I, I have worn Starfleet uh, information in public. So when you when you show me a nerd, again, it's the perspective of the artist. I don't picture some kid with a pocket protector. I picture myself like angry and zitty and completely obsessed with like the genealogy of Captain Kirk or whatever. And uh, so I put that into this again in the hopes that it would be a different perspective, that there would be an energy to it that people would connect to other than just a, um, I, I don't want to use stereotypical again, other than just a habitual image. Yeah. So you wore a Starfleet uniform to school once? I, I, I wouldn't, no, it was more than once, Al. It was bad. bad. Yeah, and uh, I like the use, again, you had like, I know some people call them the anime lines, except, you know, that's coming more out instead of focusing you in. And it looks like... mm -hmm. the, The Western perspective is the character in motion. The Eastern perspective is the environment around the character. And sometimes I think it's useful to use the anime lines, as you say, when the energy is happening inside the person, the moment right before the kick, the moment of rage, right? Because the rest of the world has disappeared. The only thing that matters is what's happening in that person's mind. And that's how I personally use them. Yeah, and it looks like that nerd is kind of upset because uh, she got an A- minus on a group project. Group projects are the worst. Yeah, especially when you when it turns out that you're the person doing ninety nine percent of the work. Totally, totally unfair. It's yeah, I've been there too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, next, we're going to be discussing the two magic using classes, starting with mm-hmm. the New Ager. So, what was the thought process here when you were doing the New Ager picture? These are the people I knew that were into New Age stuff. Um. I I hesitate to say perspective of the artist again, but the people I knew that were into the occult were always uh, young girls. And growing into adulthood, I think that that continues. Um, There's a stereotype that women like the idea of a witch because, you know, it's the way that you can be powerful that isn't connected to anybody else. But uh, the people who are obsessed with the phases of the moon and how the world could be altered by herbs or dreams or crystals or um, the stars were always, in my experience, young women. And so when you said occultist, that's immediately what I thought of. Okay. Yeah, I noticed that with the moon phases on the back, along the back of the shirt. So that's an interesting design choice along the... Uh... The spine, is that something that you made up or have you ever actually seen something like that? Or I have seen people wear things like that. I have seen it even on bumper stickers and the like. Again, 
Um, it's, it's all about who you talk to and when you talk to them. The phases of the moon, I felt, were a subtle and non-denominational way of implying paganism without directly calling out anything that would bleed over into the occultist. Yep. Yeah, and then I noticed there was also the star chart in the inside the locker, and it looks like she has a, some. Is that supposed to be like some oil, essential oils or something in the locker there? Crystals or candles or oils or bottles. I left it kind of vague because a it was in shadow, and b I wanted the people who came to the character to figure out what she had in her locker on their own. Okay. And then next we get to the flip side of the New Ager, and that is the occultist. So this one is interesting because it doesn't the, – the hints that this is supposed to be an occultist are are a lot more subtle. So uh, you, I, I actually had to look for it because when I first saw it, you know, the, the rough sketch you were doing, I thought that was supposed to be the rebel picture. Mm. Well, I think that to be uh, an occultist type is a kind of rebellion, so I don't think that's necessarily a bad or a wrong interpretation. Um, I would say that it's somebody who is rebelling in a non-physical way. Again, going by people I have met in my own life, uh, the sorts that were interested in uh, Anton LaVey and, you know, uh, cults and the like would include it within their person, like the cell phone cover, like the necklaces, like what's he scrawled on the bottom of his shoes, but wouldn't necessarily um, preach it, you know? Okay, more subtle. You know, I just noticed that, yeah, there's, <laughs> I didn't notice that before, the thing on the bottom of the shoe. <laughs> I personally love including little details. The two, the two things that I like to do best are first, Make it the most important moment of that person's day. Make it the thing that somebody else remembers about them. And second, have it be a picture that people can come back to ten times and find it interesting each time. I never want to throw away picture. Yeah, that's cool. It is always nice when you do have the little, like, uh, Easter egg types, I guess you could say, type stuff in there. And then mm -hmm. so it looks like he also has an ankh around his neck and then just like a little, like, skull-like thing, dragon-type skull necklace or... I was going with uh, a skull with goat horns. There's only so much you can do in a relatively small setting, but the nice thing about someone like an occultist is that you can let people draw their own interpretation, and it won't be too far off the mark. Okay. So then next we have the preppy. So for this one, you actually, instead of focusing on a single person, you actually put two subjects in this one. Mm -hmm. Because I think uh, a prep... Uh, so prep comes from college prep, and it's evolved over time. I don't think the word is as much in use anymore, but it's more of a status than a personal quality. And so I wanted to show the sort of kid who was privileged, you know? And so I've got a, um, a visco girl on the right, and I've got a kid just – with exactly the right kind of clothes on on the left in terms of, I mean, I was Googling left and right. Let's face it. I am not a teenager. I don't <laughs> know what's cool anymore. But I was trying to do my best to show in current terms what somebody who is at the top of the pyramid looks like. Yeah, and I noticed that with the, the male character, you know, kind of like fashionably sloppy look with the the shirt mm -hmm. not tucked in and the um 
Yeah, I just noticed too, like half of the collar's out and the other half is tucked in. That's actually one of the few things that stood the test of time. There are scholarly books about status and class. And one of the few things that has uh, sustained itself as a signal across multiple decades is whether or not your collar is fully tucked into your sweater. The uh, more sloppy you are willing to be with an expensive shirt and sweater, the more likely you are to be old money. Okay, interesting. Because if they figure if you uh, you don't really, if you have that old money, you really don't care as much about looking good because hey, I've got money, so who cares? <laughs> Well, it's not just I've got money. It's I will never have to work, so ah. I don't need to impress you, you know? Yep. Okay, so then on the flip side of the preppy is the rebel. So this is an interesting one because we have three people in this particular picture. Mm -hmm. Well, that was partly because I didn't want to create – how can I put this? When you're When you're drawing someone that could be perceived as a negative role – you don't want to give that image to anyone who could be characterized by it. You never want to punch down. And so by including multiple people, I can prevent a single image of who someone who's outside of society or violent or rejected would be. Um, and uh, I decided I would go with the most sort of middle-class rebels I could think of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah no, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But I grouped them together, both for a good composition, both for the sense of um, movement and action, because what's a rebel without something to rebel against? But also because I feel like there's a sense of performance. Um the uh, the occultist and the new ager are doing something because it's personally meaningful to them. The rebels are pushing back against something else. So their actions mean less without a context. And so I wanted to give them a context. Yeah, I got the guy drawing the anarchy symbol on the thing. And then there's a couple. Uh, are both of those supposed to be girls or just the one in the. That's... They're both girls. Okay. And then a couple of girls beating each. What's that? In my view, at least, they're both girls. Like, I suppose it's all – at this point, it's out of my hands. It's in the eyes of the viewers, right? Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, then you got a couple of them that are beating each other up for some <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? I mean, yep. I've gotten into fights over goodness knows what. Not physical altercations because I am a wimp, but <laughs> – <laughs> So, next we've got – speaking of uh... – People who are less likely to get into a fight, uh, we go to the next one, the scout. Mm -hmm. And as for the scout, I just tried to think of somebody bringing themselves forward in the community. And so uh, with the scout, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just someone who was prepared, but somebody who was reaching out. I felt like it would be a good example to players that here's something that you can use to connect the group together. And I thought it would be a good example to players of here's somebody who's not just seeking skills, but is using them. So. I know you actually had a couple of, you weren't real, because I remember when we were talking about some of the possible ideas, I remember it sounded like you weren't really sure exactly what you wanted to do with the scout, where you were thinking almost like a kid on like a dirt bike with a GoPro or something like that. So. 
I think it took me a little while to figure out what you were looking for with the scout. I think I didn't understand at first uh, what you wanted. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's a good thing that it's something we needed to explore together. But um, at first, I thought you were thinking of a scout as somebody who was exploring the area or the story as opposed to somebody who was expressing that kind of archetype of uh, the, the skillful boy scout. Yeah, and I do like the picture you came up with, and I think it's good the way you explained it with the you know, they're, they're reaching out to their community and okay. Mm -hmm. And then, and then finally there is the last one, the student. This is the other one that I kind of identified with because I tried just about everything in school and I felt like that was also something really identifiable. Somebody who is figuring themselves out and has learned a thousand things along the way. And because that's something not very concrete. I decided to put that all into the details. You know, the knight on the badge for the chess club and the same patch on his backpack as, as was on the preppy sweater for the college and a symbol that was in the occultist's uh, backpack and a symbol that was in the New Agers backpack and a symbol that was on the scout's uh, flyer. And all of these different things come in together as somebody who's tried a little bit of everything. Yeah, I just noticed that with the little, yeah, like I said, this is what I like about your pictures is how like, yeah, there's these little things that I, I didn't notice the first time around. Um, so of the pictures you did here, which one would you say is probably your favorite? Which one do you think turned out the best? That's a really great question. I feel like my three, well, my four favorites are probably the three punks fighting and the soccer girl, the jock, the new ager, and the nerd rage. The new ager and the nerd rage are probably because I feel an emotional connection to them. It may not be because they're the best pictures. I do like the way the student turned out, um, especially how you described it, where he was trying to do a little bit of everything. So, you know, he's got a, a he's got like a, a bugle, so you could see that as like the entertainer. The skateboard mm -hmm. could be something like either the jock or the rebel. Uh, and mm -hmm. then again on his bag, he's got, you know, looks like a little eye symbol that could be like the occultist. The green piece thing could be like the new ager. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you mentioned the the chess piece and the uh, could be like the nerd. So again, he's kind of like mm -hmm. that dabbler. He's got a little bit of everything. So I would have to say that's probably my favorite of the of the the pictures for the clicks. Perfect. I will say, though, I'm a huge. Is it egotistical of me to say that I'm a big fan of my own cover? I really had a lot of fun doing that. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong, at least in my opinion, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being proud of something you did. And, and again, it turned out really well. So I really liked how the cover turned out. So, I mean, not only just as a piece of art, but the way you explained, um, you know, your thought process behind it to me. So. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being proud of the cover. Sweet. Of the pitch, the click pictures you've done, are there any that maybe you're, you weren't as happy with how they turned out and maybe you look at it and think, you know, maybe I could have did something a little better. Maybe I could have done something a little different. When we first talked about me getting interested in art, I mentioned that art was the thing that I enjoyed failing at. And here's the secret. I like 
these drawings, but every single one of them, I can spot something that I should have done differently, that I should have done better. It's, a, it's, I'm not a masochist, but it is a masochistic feeling looking at older art or anything that you've just considered finished. There's always a way that you have grown just enough to see how it could be done differently. You know, uh, maybe I could have done the scout more dynamically. Maybe I could have improved the perspective on the entertainer. Maybe I could have varied the line weight more in the occultist. Maybe I could have changed up the camera angle on the preps. There's, there's always a way to do it better. And that's the torment of art itself. So I think that the only good thing about knowing that I could have done it better is that the next one is going to be better because of these experiences. Okay. So we had a question for a how, a who, a when. So what is the airspeed velocity of a laden swallow? Now, I, I told you that I wore a Star Trek uniform to school more than once, Al. You can't ask me a question <laughs> like this. Uh, if you take the question literally, it's about 24 miles an hour for a European swallow. If you take the question metaphorically, <laughs> we're going to get into like a two-hour conversation about the intent of Monty Python. So let's not do that. Okay. <laughs> so when you are getting ready to create art, how do you get in the mood? Is there anything you do to get those creative juices flowing, whether it's, you know, listening to a certain type of music, uh, you know, lighting candles, burning incense. What do you do when you are getting ready to be creative? Good question. So in the before times, <laughs> I would, no, again, and I, it's, it's this terrible thing to say, but I think, I think it's reasonable to address the stress that almost all humans are under right now, including creative humans. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I understand it's tough with like all the, you know, the negativity and even just with like, especially early on during, um, you know, the pandemic where everything was closed and you really couldn't go anywhere. So, well, and then just all of the changes in what's required of us, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, I would say that, um, adaptability is required. Mm -hmm. Historically, what I've done is, you know, put on mood music, something without words so that my brain isn't trying to stress itself. I would say I would read things or uh, look at art that was connected to it to uh, load up my brain with influences to find things that helped me feel the feeling that I wanted to convey, not necessarily to copy. I don't keep things open in front of me, but to help me find uh, the right kind of angle to place the crowbar, you know? These days, I would say what I do is first and foremost observe the practice of art as an exercise, like a martial artist training every day, whether you feel like it or not. But then finding that moment to connect to uh, how is it important to the character in the drawing? How is it important to the moment in the story? And if you can find a way to make it important to yourself then the drawing flows smoothly from there that's what i think okay well i don't really have any other questions right now so um you know certainly like to thank you for taking the time to talk with me so do you have any sort of online art portfolio or if people want to find out more about your art is there anywhere they can go 
You can find my general postings on Instagram at Casey Wilson Art, underscores between Casey and Wilson and Art. If you're interested in the more general stuff, uh, you can find me on Facebook. Again, Casey underscore Wilson underscore Art. And that's got a lot of the portraiture and pet portraits and things like that where I'm more learning about color than expressing myself. But by all means, reach out to me. I haven't done as much this year as I've done in previous years just because of the circumstances we all find ourselves in. But I'd love to talk with anyone who reaches out. And I hope that everyone who listens to your podcast has a wonderful evening. Thanks. And uh, thanks again for taking some time out of your day to talk with me. And uh, hope you all enjoyed uh, the presentation here. And stay safe from the corona and have a wonderful day. <laughs> You have been listening to a production of the Eclectic Media Project. Please check us out on the web at www.eclecticmediaproject.com and on Podbean and iTunes. Find Scott and Chad on Twitter as well at EMP underscore Scott and at Chad EMP. We are on Facebook at Eclectic Media Project. Visit our publishing arm at www.poigamestudio and follow them on Twitter at POIGamestudio. Thank you and we look forward to bringing you more thought-provoking and enjoyable content.